This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Happy New Year to everyone, and welcome back for another segment of The Full Ratchet. After discussing the value of data with Leo Polovets, I thought it would be great to get Andrew Parker on the program to discuss algorithms and startups that are using algorithms as a source of competitive advantage. And that's what we're covering today in part one of our interview with Andrew. We will address questions including why he invests in startups with a focus on algorithms, examples of businesses that are using algorithms as a source of competitive advantage, startups that appear to be using algorithms as their key differentiator that are, in fact, not, how Andrew assesses the technical capability of founders, his opinion on stacks and coding languages that entrepreneurs should be using, how to determine the value of algorithms very early on in a startup's lifecycle, if he looks for startups using algorithmic approaches from other industries in a new context or sector, how Andrew determines if database solutions are real problems that have real demand in the market, and finally, how he thinks about IP with regards to algorithms. Here's part one of the interview on algorithms as a competitive advantage. Today, we welcome Andrew Parker from Boston. Andrew is a former technical programmer and designer turned investor. He began his VC career at Union Square Ventures and is now a general partner for Spark Capital. I first came across Andrew through his blog at thegongshow.tumblr.com. And aside from his great writing, one of my favorite things about the blog is that he includes his investment thesis for each deal he's led. If you want some insight into how VCs make decisions, I think it's one of the better blogs out there. With that said, Andrew, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for your time today. Oh, well, hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak to your listeners, and thanks for the really generous introduction there. The plug for the blog, I'll I'll get a couple more readers out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for writing it. (laughs) Um, So before we jump into the topic, can you start us out with your background and how you became involved in startup investing? Sure. Yeah. So I kind of have two stories in my background. One is the professional story that I could walk through, which you know makes some kind of an arc about why I made which career moves when I did. But but the real story is that I really have just been chasing a woman around the country for about a decade now. <laughs> um, so I first met my wife, Lisa, uh, an undergrad at Stanford, and uh, she was studying biology there. I was, I was studying uh, symbolic systems, kind of a mix of computer science and uh, linguistics and philosophy and education. And they kind of, you get a lot of breath, but, but not too much depth. And so my first job was in the Bay Area at a hosting company called uh, Homestead. Uh, they ended up selling it into it a year later. I was doing like uh, product design and product management for them. 
But I largely chose that because, you know, my wife wanted to hang around the Bay Area. She had gotten a job at a local biotech. And, and so I was like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's hang out together. And that was great. Um, but then she applied to medical school across the country. She, she got into Columbia PNS in New York. So I was like, oh, New York specialization around computer vision that I just thought was going to be super interesting. And, and, you know, as I mentioned before, my major had a lot of breadth, but not much depth. So I thought like a graduate degree would be a really good way to get that depth that I felt like I was lacking. And I was two weeks away from enrollment. And I just kind of fell over backwards on the opportunity to work with uh, Fred Wilson and Brad Burnham at Union Square Ventures. And I was the uh, second analyst they had ever had at that program I think you interviewed the the first one they ever had previously on this show, Charlie O'Donnell. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, yeah, so I, I followed him, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, uh, I knew a little bit about venture capital because my father uh, was a venture capitalist when I was growing up, and so I got kind of that kitchen table view. Uh, he always worked in a very different market. He was doing more specialty materials and chemicals and some biotech and stuff like that, whereas I don't do any of that stuff. But I had a sense of what the job was like. And so then to actually, you know, do on the front lines, I just thought it was great. And so uh, I drank from the fire hose at USV for, for four years. And then um, my wife graduated medical school and got a residency up in the partners program between um, uh, MGH and Brigham Women doing OBGYN. And so I was like, all right, Boston, like, here we come. And uh, <laughs> I, I called up the guys at Spark and I said, hey, I'm moving to Boston really like to work out of the same city where I'm living. And so I'm going to leave Union Square. And, you know, what do you think about working together? And it was a really easy conversation. I already knew about half the partners there, but they had me meet the other half over the course of the week. And they made me an offer at the end of the week. And it was great. It's really, really worked out well for me. So cool. Would love to pick your brain sometime on how Fred and Brad sort of make decisions and and how they size things up. But but today we're talking data and algorithm-based startups. So you've written a great deal about startups using algorithm as the basis for their value. When and why did you begin investing in startups with a focus on algorithms? Well, you know, I I think that's always been something of interest to me, right? Like there's this sexiness, this idea in in IT investing that while you're sleeping, you're making money. You know what I mean? Like there's this (laughs) constant machine that's going on in the background and whatever. And so like I, I think like anyone who's interested in this space at some basic level shares that common interest in in the idea that there is the machine that's been programmed to do something and repeat a million times and and you found some marginal value in in doing that but I, I think you know the the interest was really honed in as I described earlier drinking from the fire hose at uh, Union Square Ventures you know data uh, as a form of a network effect you know some way in which as a startup gets more data, the value in that startup starts to compound on itself. And the way you process that data creates even more value than the sum of the data itself. That was certainly a piece or at least a derivative of you know, what they had focused on a lot of Ian Square. And, and so that's where I, I honed my investment lens was, was learning from Fred and Brad and, and later Albert there. And so that's a piece of it. And then the other piece I would say is when Coursera first launched, there was only three classes there was an artificial intelligence class, a database class, and a uh, machine learning class. And I, I found this model for learning online really just like wildly uh, novel. And so I signed up right away specifically for the machine learning class. Uh, it was taught by a, a Stanford professor that I didn't take his class while I was at Stanford, but I, 
I had seen him guest lecture a few times. I, I knew I was going to be in for something great. It's Andrew Ang's machine learning course on Coursera. It still exists. Um, you could take it tomorrow. There, you know, I, I really got an appreciation for you know a lot of the machine learning algorithms. There's a, a whole bunch of different flavors that you cover in the course of the MOOC that. Getting hands-on with that gave me a much finer appreciation for just how much leverage there is in trying to build a business on top of one of these algorithms if you can really make it work for a value proposition in a startup. Yeah, we recently had Tom Tungus on the program and got to talk a little bit about machine learning, but the whole area is just so fascinating. And Yeah, um, I love Tom's blog, man. He, he does a great job. I haven't met him in person, but, but I'm an admirer from afar. Yeah. Great guy. Very authentic. Really appreciated him coming on. But Andrew, can we start off with an example of a business or two that are using algorithms as their competitive advantage and why the algorithm provides that advantage? Yeah, sure. It's rare you see a company built on on solely one algorithm alone. Instead, you know, you'll see companies that compose their product, their value proposition through a combination of both algorithms and then usually some kind of, you know, say human filtering or design or other touch or whatever. But there are definitely corners of particular products that largely sing well because of the algorithm that underlies them. So, you know, you've seen a huge rise in startups that pitch themselves as Uber for X. And I think part of what they're describing there is you hit a button on your phone and something magically comes to you. <laughs> and, and behind that simplicity is usually some kind of logistics-based algorithm, routing algorithm, some way in which they're matching supply and demand in real time. You know, in the case of our own portfolio company, Postmates, that's, that's certainly true. You know, when you're asking for a Postmate to, say, bring you food from a local restaurant or something like that, like there's, there's a lot of heavy lifting going on in the back end or, in order to match supply and demand efficiently. Think about route optimization. There's some classic computer science problems that are being tackled in here, like a, a traveling salesman problem or just other kind of logistical issues. So, you know, you'll see this kind of thing crop up startups all across our portfolio one way or another. I go into other examples of other algorithms that solve other problems. I don't want to dig too far into this question, though. I'll follow your direction. (laughs) Okay. How about the other side of the coin? Uh, Could you give us an example of a startup where the common perception may be that they're using algorithms as the key value for their business, but in fact, it's not the case? Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a thing that occurs. I think it's a really interesting question. You know, for example, we, we made an investment in a company called IEX. And now I, I don't want to use IEX as an example to say that there's no algorithms there. In fact, they're probably one of our most algorithmically intensive portfolio companies. But but there was one particular problem that they solved that I thought was super interesting. And maybe some of your listeners have read about this in the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. So IEX was the featured company in that book. Sure, the, yeah. the purpose of the product, the purpose of the, of the company is to try and help large block traders, large institutional public equity holders get liquidity for their holdings without being front run by high frequency trading uh, algorithms. 
And so you see this constant cat and mouse game evolve during the course of the book. And I, I found one um, technique of combating the high frequency trader super interesting because you'd think it would be algorithmically intensive, but instead it's actually dumb, simple, basic physics where they are willing as an exchange to connect to counterparties' computers, people who are going to trade in their network and provide liquidity for their exchange. But many of those people are high frequency traders. And so rather than trying to identify those people a priori, instead they just take away their advantage by running 50 miles worth of fiber optic cable inside of a small little plastic box, which is basically like the size of a bread box. <laughs> um, and that that box is a thing that exists that you can buy in retail. You go buy it on Amazon because it's used for diffusion testing of long distance fiber optic network transfer for these, you know, kind of legacy fiber optic uh, infrastructure companies. They, sure. they use yeah. specifically for testing purposes. And so I just bought a bunch of these boxes and stuck them directly in between the connection between their exchange and the counterparty's computer. And they now took away the high-speed advantage that's necessary for all these high-frequency traders' algorithms to work by just simply running the order requests over 50 miles worth of distance, even though the computers are only like you know 10 feet apart. So I, I thought that was super clever. You'd think that an algorithm would be able to solve this problem better, but in fact, it's just physics. You know, sometimes the most simple, elegant solutions are better than the overly complex, overly designed solutions that uh, you often read about or hear about. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And, and there is like a Occam's razor that kind of emerges there where if you can find the simpler solution, like just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I coded in, in college in, in eight different languages. And I think my code was always three or four times as long as as some of the better coders in the class. So I was the least elegant, but um, if I could get to the answer, then, then I was happy. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember the best coders, there was certainly a brevity to their code, but then there was also a readability that was so impressive where, you know, just simply by reading function names and variable names, you knew exactly what was going on, even if you couldn't follow the logic. And, and that, that really separated, you know, some of the best programmers in my undergrad program. Good point. You often have to debug other people's code. So if it's yeah. if it's readable and indexed and yeah. it's it's a lot easier. So so Andrew, you've written about technical entrepreneurs who think in code and use elegant algorithms to solve complex problems. How do you go about evaluating the technical expertise of an entrepreneur or founder? Well, I think to a certain degree you can treat a technical founder uh, like a black box and just see what comes out. Right. So you can do this, I think, in uh, a couple different ways. One is seeing just the raw product that comes out of that box. Now, you, you might not be analyzing an algorithm alone, right? Instead, you might be analyzing an algorithm plus design plus some speed or latency in terms of you know, the network efficiency uh, for what they've built or something like that. But if there really is value in uh, the algorithm that's just the core of what they're doing, that should be transparent in the product execution. And if it isn't, then that's an adverse signal that you can look for. I think that the other way you can treat a technical founder like a black box, kind of just see what comes out, is through thought leadership in code. And I think this is a concept that has really risen to prominence over the course of the past decade, and was true prior to then, but less so. So like the, the primary web presence for a really strong 
technical founder is usually going to be GitHub, yep. uh, where you yep. can see the frequency with which they're checking in code, how starred or forked any given project that they've uploaded there is. You can definitely get a sense of like the heat, the activity from a GitHub profile in a way that you know before GitHub existed, that would be pretty hard to wrap your arms around. And then if you think even further back, you know, the 80s kind of mini computer era or something like that, there, you know, IP was treated very differently where people were super productive, constantly trying to lock down their IP. The idea that you'd incorporate, you know, open source technology into your company was heresy. And so, like, we've just come such a long way from there that you can just look at what's happening in this open source community. And, and that says a lot about a technical founder. Do you look at and care whether they're a full stack coder, front end, back end, and or do you do you care about the languages? So if they're using some of the more antiquated stacks out there as opposed to maybe some of the more modern and uh, responsive stacks that have come out more recently? Yeah, I, I don't care about the stack or the language or, or any of that stuff. So long as you know they've made an intelligence choice about using the best tool for the job. And I think the best tool comes down to a couple different things. One is, is the tool actually well-suited? Like, for example, Twitter was originally built on Ruby on Rails, and that was just a mistake. You know, they had to rebuild a lot of the backend code there to be on C because they built what was essentially a messaging app on top of a platform that was really designed from the ground up to be much more around uh, like a CMS framework, plus plus. So, so that's one thing. Uh, two, I think their their framework decision or language decision will inform their ability to recruit. You know, like if you're writing whatever you're doing in in Node.js, that is like cocaine to uh, being able to recruit certain types of developers, <laughs> uh, which can be really helpful. But then again, you know, if if you wrote it in OCaml, that's cocaine to another set of developers. Right. Uh, it might be a smaller community, but it might also be more diehard or something like that. So, like, you know, there's there's some trade offs from a recruiting perspective when you're choosing a particular language and framework. And then the last thing I'd say about this is that the best computer scientists are really strongly rooted in programming paradigms that transcend all languages. And so if they're really great, you know, no matter what language they've learned before, they should be able to pick up the basics in a language within two weeks and then start to really wrap their arms around the idiosyncratic corner cases in a language within two months. And so the time to ramp up on a new language is not trivial, but it's, it's small enough that you're really just going to end up hiring the best developers at the end of the day. So, Andrew, those startups that are using algorithms to solve complex problems can gain a strong first-to-market advantage. How does one assess the value of an algorithm at a very early stage? Yeah, I like that question because if an algorithm is built in a way where you know the value of it increases, hopefully compoundingly, as the data that's fed into it increases. At the earliest stages, it's really hard to know, you know, like, uh, right. you know, is, is the algorithm at the core of this company valuable or not? You know, so I, I think there is something to just product quality, you know, understanding when, when you actually use the product, do you see value already? And then can you use your imagination to explain to yourself that as more data is fed in through this exhaust kind of data loop, you know, will the value proposition get better? And it might mean that you might have like a um, false negative on, you know, particular ideas or algorithms. Like it might be really hard to understand in the earliest days that 
Google's search algorithm is highly differentiated from other search algorithms because they don't yet have a whole bunch of data exhaust from humans clicking somewhere in the space of one to 10 blue links that actually provides the input that, you know, the ranking for that given search engine result page was good or not. You know what I mean? So like, I think there is this feedback loop that you have to rely on and maybe you'll end up with a false negative, but I think that's the best you can do, right? Is, is just kind of treat the algorithm like an object in the world and, and use it and show it to end consumers, obviously wrapped around, you know, good UI design and, uh, and see if it creates value. Yeah, speaking of Google, they famously sort of designed their search engine rankings around references and citations that the journal and publishing industry had used for many years. Do you look for sort of analogies across industries from an algorithmic standpoint when you're assessing a startup? Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I, I think there is some signal in there that, that you could probably uh, look for that. Definitely when companies I'm working with are trying to tackle a particular problem, such as, say, anti-spam issues or trying to surface recommended content, both of those are use cases that are really best solved through algorithmic innovation. But you know, the algorithms to, to solve those problems are mostly known. Now, they have to be really well-tuned specific to the variables in a given company, but you know, they are publicly known algorithms that you can get as a part of algorithmic framework, like, you know, what Google recently open sourced in, in TensorFlow or what, you know, Facebook released in Torch or, or whatnot. And so I, I do think there is ways in which algorithms can kind of transfer across industry, typically, you know, solving the same problems. I had not really thought about trying to proactively look for companies that have borrowed from another industry to solve a problem in another I'm not quite sure what my leading indicator would be to see that before I've met the team. But once I'm talking to the team, definitely, you know, if I, if I see the pattern recognition of someone using an algorithm to solve a completely novel problem and do it well, like that's, that's a great sign. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, Go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company, or if you invest in tech companies, 
it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. So data can reveal problems that consumers may not have even realized exist. Can you talk about how you assess whether the problem being solved has real demand in the market? Well, I think you're talking about an issue that is different if you're building a company that is creating a new market versus if you're talking about a company that is trying to take uh, a share of an existing market that already exists. Yep. Right. Like um, a lot of people describe, you know, in the case of Airbnb, the market for you know sleeping on someone else's couch was nothing, right? I mean, it was it was like a free <laughs> handout. There was the website couchsurfing.com, which was a free community beforehand, and was certainly an inspiration, my guess, uh, to the Airbnb team. But it wasn't clear that there was this this massive market around people profitably sharing their home with other people, right? And so, uh, I think for those problems where you're creating a new market it's not totally clear how data is going to help you, right? There just there has to be some imagination, some faith. I think it really requires just a, a compelling founding vision and a great founder to be able to evangelize that vision. And then an audience that believes in that vision, that audience might be a VC, but that audience might also be the founding employees, right? The first few people that are persuaded that, yeah, we're going to build something completely new and in a direction that's just pioneering, so I'm not quite sure how you'll use data in that context, but uh, you know certainly the founder's just uh, tenacity will will carry you through there. With regard to startups using data and algorithms as the fundamental value, how can entrepreneurs protect their IP, and how might a VC firm assist? Yeah, so you know IP protection in startups is is something that is a bit controversial. I think patents today, particularly software patents, which are often often manifest as, as business method patents, they're hard to protect. They're harder to get issued. I wish it was even harder because you know at its at its core, when you're trying to use patent to protect an algorithm, you're basically saying, "Hey, everyone, there's some math that exists in the world that I discovered that you can't use." And it, it feels so weird when you think about like math as some kind of pattern recognition on nature or, or a framework of thinking about the world or something like that, that it just kind of explains what already exists out there in terms right. of like pattern and numbers or whatever. And to then say that that's my pattern, like you're not allowed to use it. That, I just, I find that kind of uncomfortable uh, from an intellectual <laughs> perspective. And so instead, I, I really encourage companies to try and publish what they're doing publicly, either open source or otherwise. You don't have to publish everything, but certainly if you feel like you have some real algorithmic innovation, I find that you know the more you give away, the more you get back. And so by publishing it open source, other people are going to contribute to it. It's going to make your idea better, faster. And then find ways to build your business using data as your proprietary advantage, where as the open source community is helping improve whatever algorithmic advantage you had, you're now compounding your lead through data. I think this is exactly what Google did when they just open sourced their machine learning framework, TensorFlow. They're basically saying like, hey, we had some really smart engineers focus on building great machine learning algorithms and a framework for running those algorithms for years. And so now let's push that out into the open so that everyone together can now accelerate the pace at which we're innovating on this framework 
but Google's not sharing any of the training set data, right? They're not showing their, sharing their millions of images inside of Google Photos against which they run this algorithm. Or you know, they're, not, they're not sharing you know, the, the corpus of search history, you know, all the 10 blue links that got served up to people and which link they clicked on. And so as the open source community is, is helping improve their algorithms, Google has still really protected themselves for a long time through a, a, a data head start. Yeah, we recently had Leo Polovitz on the program, and he talked about creating data moats and how companies like a Netflix have published the algorithm that they use for recommendations, but they still hold so much data that no one has access to um, so they can maintain their competitive advantage and their source of defensibility. I love the Netflix example, too, because not only have they been public in terms of you know what is their recommendation algorithm and how it innovate over time, but they even solicited it publicly, right? They ran the the million dollar Netflix prize. This was roughly maybe you know four or five years ago or something like that. I'm, I'm hand waving. It might have been a little longer, <laughs> but um, they served up their data set anonymized of you know which users had liked which movies and then asked people to figure out well which movies are they more likely to like in the future you know what should we recommend to them and there were teams uh, of people mostly academics focused on trying to solve this problem for them in exchange for the thought leadership of being the winning team and also in exchange for a million dollar prize at the end it's just unbelievable so cool Thank you for tuning in to part one of the interview. As always, you can find show notes and guest links on the blog at fullratchet.net and look out for part two of the interview that will be released here in the next couple days. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time. <laughs>